All right, I'm here with Todd Seavey. Um, Todd is a longtime friend. We were, we were um, I'm gonna say Novak Fellows together, but it was the Phillips Foundation back then. And um, that was how many, was that like back in the late 19th century? It, it was a I while believe, ago, right? I believe we both got our grant uh, 23 years ago. Jeez, it was yeah. a long time ago. Um, I wrote about Hong Kong, Todd wrote about Tradition, basically. Tradition, yes. Um, and um, and Todd is also the author of Libertarianism for Beginners. So Todd's a longtime libertarian activist, writer, um, but the book that you should run out and buy, and I will link to it, is Libertarianism for Beginners, um, and it comes in paper and non-paper. So uh, Todd has had a couple of pieces recently talking about the issue of immigration, and his most recent one I thought was interesting because the title is Still Like Being Fenced In. And he's talking about the, the sort of sectioning off of states such as New Jersey, New York, South Carolina, and um, imposing these quarantine checks. So if you want to go in, if you want to drive into these states, you have to go through a quarantine checkpoint. Um, you actually... Uh, in some, I don't know if this is happening everywhere, but you mentioned the cell phone calls where they call you as you're crossing the border and remind you that you've got a quarantine for a few days or even longer. Um, and so states are, are setting up these hard borders. Some states are setting up hard borders. And so you asked the question, you know, as a libertarian, are you, are you happy with this? So you say, uh, my frustration about our situation is heightened by the fact that some of the people quickest to rebel against such controls have nonetheless been such enthusiasts in recent years of government border patrols. So what, what do you, what do you think, so it, are, are, are you calling these people hypocrites? What, what do you think is going on here? Uh, well, it, it varies, but um, as you know, uh, if people have some seemingly legitimate reason uh, to interfere with individual liberty or um, Im impose on property rights, they'll often take that inch and then uh, you know run a mile with it. Um, so we should always, especially if we're libertarians, be asking ourselves what's the least intrusive way we should take care of uh, the ostensible problem uh, we're dealing with. And you can't help but suspect that a lot of the, especially sort of paleo-conservative leaning people um, who talk about borders lately are delighted when they have uh, some excuse uh, to restrict immigration because basically they want to keep the tribe together, whether or not they phrase it in uh, property rights terms. And then suddenly, uh, just as those people were sort of uh, in the political uh, uh, ascendancy, uh, thanks in part to Trump, um, along comes this sort of liberal centrist justification uh, for what are effectively borders as well. Uh, health seems like a, a slightly more politically neutral topic. It's a safer one to push. And lo and behold, um, just when you're not expecting it, um, the sort of uh, liberal health czar types um, have a what looks like a louder and more urgent case for state-by-state -state borders uh, than the paleos would ever have dared to push. Uh, Ryan McMakin, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, was mentioned in, in one of my columns. He half-jokingly suggested that if borders are a good thing for the United States as a whole, um, maybe we actually should have uh, state-by-state -state borders around the 50 states of the U.S., 
And uh, and he he wasn't saying this just as sort of a John Jonathan Swift like uh, modest proposal. He didn't want people to think this idea was ridiculous. He kind of likes it. Um, and his, now his argument and the reason some people felt that I shouldn't criticize him because he's not he wasn't at least in that piece saying we might we have to stop people in general from moving around. He was interested in preventing a central super state from uh, sending, as it were, regulations across the border and taxes across the border. Often when you unify a bunch of small states to one big one, you get more regulation, a more distant bureaucracy. That's all true. Um, but you shouldn't use that as an excuse. Because we already, we already kind of have that anyway. Right. Um, and I was just saying in the, uh, in, in the new column, I was essentially saying, um, even if it is true that um, smaller states, historically, if there was a pattern of smaller states with their own borders, uh, taxing and regulating less, you shouldn't use that as an excuse to become an enthusiast for borders in general. I mean, they're still enforced by border patrols. It's still, you know, government police. Uh, the, the U.S. border uh, patrol has all sorts of intrusive powers that are exactly the sort of thing libertarians normally complain about. Uh, technically, they can, they can check without warrants anyone within 100 miles of the border, uh, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And people would never accept that if it were like, or libertarian-leaning people would never accept that if it were the ATF or, you know, uh, the FBI or SWAT teams or whatever. Um, but, you know, the border patrols that some of them suddenly like uh, are, are checking people halfway across Oregon uh, because the, uh, the border patrol um, jurisdiction extends that far. And anyway, I would, but I would just say, as with so many other statist things, you know, if you, if you give the government an inch, it will take a mile. And the same is true. And, and that, that's almost literally true um, with, with border patrols. Um, so I understand the, the arguments for saying, um, you know, people might cross the border to do bad things like regulate. They might do th bad things like use up public resources. Uh, they might, or, or to make a more uh, obvious kind of Trumpian example, they could be coming here because they're gang members or terrorists. Um, but none of that should be seen as a, a defense of borders in general, restricting peaceful humans' movements around the globe. And presumably, the ideal is a global market where people can travel wherever they want, trade whatever they want, communicate as they please. And if that is something you're opposed to, at least admit that your goal is not just enforcement of individual property rights, but that you've got some sort of tribal or uh, cultural goal that you're allowing to uh, override uh, individual rights and property rights and so right. forth. Right. So, and to me, that's so that's where I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. Um, okay. Because to me, the whole the argument about well, you know, they're going to they're going to come in and demand they're a they're going to use up our welfare money or they're, or they're going to use the roads or they're going to use our resources in some way or that they're going to vote for you know vote for more welfare or, or vote vote in socialist policies which you know we don't need immigrants to do that just you know look look around you folks sure. um uh, those those arguments kind of fall flat because you know if if that's if those are the things you're opposed to then then oppose the welfare state and oppose being able to vote away people's rights regardless of who it is whether it's um, um you know ironically at least in my experience People, a lot of people coming from across the border tend to be a little more conservative than, say, people who went to American universities. Um, but leaving so, so to me, those arguments um, don't really 
they don't carry much weight with me. Um, but when you talk about when you talk about culture and you talk about, you know, uh, this this whole the tribe um, and wanting to preserve a, a certain culture, um, so you've probably never lived in a civilized society. I have. I actually I spent a couple of years in in Japan, so you wouldn't know what this is like. But it's really nice to live in a place where. Um, that's that's just civilized, where everyone kind of knows the, there are rules about behavior, and you you behave certain in certain ways that are that are just nice. That are it's it's people are very conscientious. They're very concerned about you know the cleanliness of the place. It's it's a great place to to live, and it's a and it's largely because of this cohesive culture that everyone's sort of this part of this same culture. And that's not something, you know, unless you're talking about, um, you know, some kind of vision of a planned community where everyone gets, you know, a gulch gulch or something where everyone gets together and, um, you know, either either buys land and, and lives together and then enforces, you know, this is this is our group. We live here and we're going to sort of have the same culture. If it's not something like that, then it's not really a property rights question. It's more this question of this amorphous thing of, well, I've got this culture here that I really like. Um, I'm obviously not talking about America. Um, I've got this culture here that I really like. I don't want these other, you know, people who don't share my values coming and living next to me or living nearby. How do you how do you address the legitimate part of of that argument? If you think there is a legitimate part. Um, well, uh, first of all, it's not, I don't think it's clear how empirically true that is. I mean, there are a lot of cosmopolitan, uh, you know, places with very porous borders or porous border-like habits uh, that are uh, quite civilized and places that are extremely culturally homogenous, uh, you know, that are barbaric and you wouldn't want to mm. live in. Um, so, um you know, there, there are a lot of places on the earth that are probably very uh, culturally homogenous where your odds of being lynched or attacked with a machete are much higher than they would be if you were living in, say, Amsterdam, um, uh, which doesn't mean that I dismiss um, that some good things can come of uh, homogeneity and, and, and certainly shared etiquette expectations. Those can be useful things. But as with everything else, libertarians talk about uh there are trade-offs and presumably uh, markets will show you what the correct trade-offs are better than government action will. Uh, mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so it's still not a case for government enforced borders. It might just be a case for sort of sharing as it were, tourism info about where to go. So if a whole bunch of people said like, you know, Hey, I've spent time in uh, rural new England and it turns out to be uh, quite pleasant and, People there, uh, you know, rarely get into fistfights, um, uh, and they're and they're easygoing and mellow, or something like that. Uh, maybe regardless of whether that's the truth, uh, you can you know you can travel there, and if enough people travel there that the mores change, you can move away, and that's pretty much how it should be. As with making decisions in the market about uh, whether everyone wants to go to the same dance club or conclude that it's gotten too crowded and now you want to go somewhere else. So you know, let people flow in a market-like way, uh, just as uh, investment dollars uh, flow, you know, to places and, or just as uh, uh, 
businesses might start approximating monopoly and then become lazy. And so you don't want to deal with them. So you go elsewhere. Um, there's no reason to believe, you know, those government border patrols will know when to cut off the newcomers better than the market itself will. Um, so I, I'm, I'm actually sympathetic to uh, some of the concerns of the uh, traditionalists and, uh, and stuff. I can understand how etiquette can erode if uh, people aren't on the same page about these things. Um, but, uh, but that doesn't mean they, they get to governmentally uh, make the decision. And um, I suppose it's, it's also worth noting that um, by some metrics, I, I, supposedly there are uh, economists have done studies showing that uh, if you assume that there will be at least some commerce and cosmopolitan interaction, uh, big city cosmopolitan types are actually better at navigating uh, etiquette with newcomers than uh, conservative rural dwellers are. So uh, it often used to be said by sort of conservative leaning people that sort of the, the rural folk and the non-industrial folk uh, often behave better because they think as if their their grandparents are watching them and may disapprove of their behavior. Um, but there's some studies suggesting that the reason they behave better in some ways is that it is not so much that uh, they've uh, deeply absorbed a moral code that will serve them well when they encounter novel situations, but rather because their grandparents literally are watching them. So they're behaving well uh, while they're in their usual familiar environment. Um, but when the newcomers move in, they might be extra nasty to them. Um, whereas or maybe the just less familiar with different you know, different cultures not being a part of their daily existence. It's more yeah. of a shock Whereas, to the whole as, as in uh, New York City, um, the cosmopolitans may seem a little gruff and rude, but they're also not going to lose their minds if, you know, a, a newcomer from another strange part of the world shows up. And because they're dealing with sort of more abstract cosmopolitan rules of thumb about behavior, they might be better suited to realizing, oh, this strange newcomer is just trying to ask me, you know, where, where can I get something to eat? Uh, what, what are the major transportation hubs? And I can handle those basic questions. Whereas if I were a rural bumpkin, I might just freak out and I'd be like, you know, I'd be like, that guy's haircut is like something I've never seen before. Um, so so the, the, cosmopol the cosmopolitanism and abstraction uh, to some degree seem to go together and uh, yeah. sort of the rural conservative patterns and non-abstraction uh, tend to go together. Uh, and there are situations in which one is better and situations in which the other is better. And I wouldn't want the government uh, putting its thumb on the scale. Mm. Um, you know, uh, depend, depends on the situation. Okay, so, so what about the question, um, this is something that's come up in recent years um, <clears throat> with, you know, all of the, the, the enormous um, numbers of, of immigrants into Europe from the Middle East and Africa, and uh, particularly in places like Sweden, where you know there are accounts, and I and I get that some of these accounts are um, are some of them are not true, that some of them are exaggerated, but I also know some of them are true. I mean, I have um, I've heard directly from from people in um, or people who have have visited, say, Sweden, and said, yeah, the people who live there are actually very concerned about this, that. There are um, these these kind of gangs and and individuals um, who go around attacking people and women in particular. And um, in some in some parts of Sweden, apparently the police are actually afraid to go into certain to certain areas to even enforce 
you know, obvious enforce laws against obvious crimes. So this is something that <clears throat> I think the anti-immigrationists have really jumped on and said, see, this is what happens when you have open borders. These hordes of foreigners come in and they attack defenseless people and we're powerless to stop them. So uh, what do you have to say about that? Uh, I, I acknowledge that uh, th there there may be uh, big problems in that area, but you know, as with other crimes, I'd say uh, the best way to create incentives to prevent those crimes is to keep punishing the guilty individuals. You know, it's like the, the broader the net of punishment, uh, I think the worst job you tend to do sending uh, the proper messages about what kind of behavior you want. So saying, for instance, oh, there was a machete attack uh, in Copenhagen, so we're going to forbid all Ethiopians from, from coming to this country. Um, I think it is sloppy and dangerous in much the same way that it would be dangerous to say, let's disarm all U.S. citizens uh, because there have been a few shootings that we're not happy about. Uh, so some of the same people who want the blanket solutions on immigration problems mm -hmm. would never accept blanket solutions on regulatory or, you know, or gun matters. Um, and it's not just the hypocrisy there that's a problem. I'm, I'm actually, I, I, I'm actually, in a sense, uh, in favor of uh, you know firm, almost dirty Harry like um, uh, policing. But I want it to be targeted correctly. And the the uh, uh, most important idea, in a way, not just of uh, policing, but all modern conceptions of morality, is you punish the guilty individual not all the innocents standing near him or related to him or coming over on the same boat with him. Uh, you know, the closer you can get to punishing uh, guilty individuals and leaving innocent individuals alone, the better. And over time, uh, people actually, they do learn from that. You know, if they, if they know that like their relatives were able to get jobs and, and live uh, as healthy, normal parts of society, but that one guy who likes machete attacks ended up in prison, uh, they, they will get the message. So part of the problem may just be overly, overly uh, left-wing continental European notions of policing. You know, mm -hmm. I, for a long time, like if the, uh, the Danes thought that, you know, murderers should only be in prison for 12 months or whatever, uh, you know, you're not going to send the powerful message you want to about these being forbidden behaviors. Um, of course, I realize sometimes the U.S. may go too far in the other direction and you, you leave people in prison for decades and they just come out monsters who can't be... Uh, yeah, the U.S. is, is definitely at the op op opposite extreme of that. Um, I, yeah, I guess it's, my Batman-like vigilante side does still believe that, you know, it's often useful to, you know, make examples of people and send tough messages. They just had better be the guilty individuals right. and not everybody else. Right, right. And, and I don't, you know, I, this is not something I've really dug into. I don't know why that doesn't seem to be happening um, in parts of Europe. It, it's, it sounds from the accounts I've heard, and again, I can't really stand behind a whole lot of these because um, some, some have come from the media and I'm not entirely sure um, of their validity, but even from sort of from, from some of the personal accounts, it sounds like the police have either kind of given up or have been told not to, or in, in, in England too, you hear about this, where uh, some crimes just don't seem to be um, taken on. They don't seem to be either prosecuted or, or even investigated. So I think some, something's going on, something's going on there that's kind of the opposite of what you're talking about. Um, 
that that would be, you know, that, that sounds completely rational. Yeah. If you have, you know, there, there should be some kind of, you know, people shouldn't be able to get away with murder and, and rape and attack and all that kind of, all that sort of thing. Um, getting back to the U S um, you mentioned in, I think this was your first article. Um, you were talking about government checkpoints and you mentioned Greyhound um, that that Greyhound has announced that it's not going to be complying with searches of its vehicles by immigration agents. Um, what what should what should a libertarian think about that? Uh, well, I would say obviously that uh, Greyhound is a private company and should be able to do what it wants. And uh, uh, I mean, to me, that seems like a pretty uh, straightforward, easy, easily answered one. Um, I mean, except insofar as, again, showing my uh, pro-police, as it were, side, uh, even though I would, by the way, completely privatize the police and all other functions of government. But but I, I am sympathetic to the view that um, you might want to cut police some slack when it comes to things like pursuing a murderer through a market, you know, like where they're chasing a guy who's got an axe covered in blood and so forth. I mean, you like you cut them a little slack if they're trying to stop what is obviously a much greater uh, instance of coercion. So um, I hope Greyhound, you know, wouldn't turn away agents who were trying to catch a guy who was running around with a severed head or something like that. Um, you know, in practice, I think in the moment, probably the bus driver would uh, would let the agents on if he was dealing with a real emergency situation. But uh, keep in mind, a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, border agents, just like a lot of DEA agents are enforcing stupid laws we don't like. Um, So when they're searching people, they're just trying to catch a guy who's traveling or or has overstayed his visa, or they're trying to catch people who are transporting drugs that we think should be legal. Um, So there's a limit to how much sympathy we should have for customs or ICE. Yeah, and that that raises a really good point, which is that you know, in a in a sane society, if if police really did what you know we're taught in kindergarten is what they do, which is protect us from crime, if that's actually what they did, then there would be there w- there wouldn't be much of a reason to oppose them. There wouldn't be much of a reason to say, no, nah, we're just going to ignore you know your requests to stop and and you would the assumption would be they're doing something legitimate. And in our society today, there's kind of, there's hardly ever, I mean, certainly they could be doing something legitimate, but if I see the police pulling someone over by the side of the road, my first thought is not, oh, thank God they got a criminal. It's what are they harassing him for? You know, what's, you know, it's, they've, they've, they've downgraded their own legitimacy by enforcing all of these stupid, you know, illegitimate laws. Um, One thing I, okay. So I, like to go off on a little bit of a tangent because we started talking about the police. What are your thoughts about the defund the police movement? Um, well, I, I guess uh, in a way it's similar to my thoughts about uh, the slogan black lives matter. It's like, uh, it's you know, literally true, but of course it gets loaded with all sorts of other sometimes uh, left-wing or even Marxist uh, assumptions. So, I mean, if people meant defund the police because they want to defund the whole government um, or defund the police because they want private uh, protection agencies to be able to pick up the slack and do the job better. Uh, I'd be all for it. But in practice, it seems pretty clear that as in Minneapolis, uh, a lot of the people say defund the police actually just mean uh, let the riots continue until they've got it out of their system or they mean uh, shift 
all of the money, which will still be taken from taxpayers into uh, more uh, community organization and welfare state uh, type functions, uh, which may be even a worse return on your dollar than the policing. So, I mean, if they literally meant it and it was accompanied by the right to form private uh, police and certainly the right to uh, arm yourself and take care of your own defense too, I would be all for it. And I may have even written a recent column called Defund the Police or something like that. Oh, where okay, I, think I, I was, <laughs> where I was uh, essentially you know, agreeing in the, with the broad strokes by recognizing that most of the people who say it uh, don't mean it quite the way it sounds. And, um, and, and I think it's pretty clear that uh, Black Lives Matter, as a, uh, at least as a specific organization, it's tough to say. I'm sure, as with Black Panthers or Libertarians, there are a bunch of different overlapping organizations. So I don't mean to imply they all have the same position. But at times, at least, uh, I know a couple of years ago, uh, some major chapter or center of Black Lives Matter had amongst its demands um, decriminalizing trespassing. Um, so I don't know when you see things like that, you have to worry a little about what their post police world looks like. And, uh, also I think a lot of people, uh, pushing the defund the police thing, uh, really don't have good answers when you ask them what comes afterwards. Yeah. Uh, you know, so they, they want to, like in the case of, uh, I think at least one Minneapolis, uh, city councilor, uh, she wanted to. Uh, defund the police immediately. And then when you ask what, so what happened, somebody asked her what happens when my relatives uh, get shot at or they suffer a home invasion uh, the next day, she basically said like, well, that'll be a, that'll be an ongoing conversation, you know, and uh, <laughs> I, I don't want to get rid of the police first and then have an ongoing conversation. Right. That sounds bad. Um, I mean, you know, maybe the best answer to give instead of, instead of being forced as usual into giving a thumbs up, thumbs down, uh, to these slogans is to uh, stick to uh, our real, more nuanced positions, which in this case, I guess, would be privatize the police. Um, at least, I don't know, that would be my position. Um, and then hopefully they will behave better. Oh, and of course, simplify the law, as you were saying earlier. Uh, the fewer laws they have to enforce, the fewer stupid combative encounters they'll be. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I agree with everything you said there. Um, I do, I, I, I feel like it is an opportunity just having this, this movement out there is an opportunity for us to get our ideas across because there's clearly this deep dissatisfaction, you know, to put it mildly with what the police are doing. And there should be, I mean, you know, in a, in a lot of communities in this country there, the police are, are basically just predators. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a conversation that's long overdue. It's just obviously been hijacked by people who's, you know, who don't want less authoritarianism, let's put it that way. Um, but I, I do feel like it's a, it's a great opportunity for us to get across the idea. Um, in fact, I've been reposting some of my old articles about this, um, about, you know, why, why it's a problem to have centralized policing and to have, you know, it's basically this unaccountable body and how do we make it accountable? And, and so, yeah, I, th I think, um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, yeah, go ahead. I'm reminded that, uh, when the city council member in Minneapolis was asked, uh, you know, what happens the next day if my relatives get attacked by home invaders, um, she actually started out by saying, uh, 
that question really comes from a place of privilege. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. So, uh, (laughs) and even when you quite rightly say that police are often regarded as predators, um, uh, even when you say that, you know, you you have to keep in mind, as I'm I'm sure you do, that uh, people aren't entirely wrong to think that those police are keeping other predators at bay, at least mm. some of the time. You can see that with the rioting uh, going on recently. I mean, if, if the police all just stand down and our alternative isn't peace and and uh, happy hippies dancing together, but instead people being able to smash storefronts, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't, to most Americans, I don't think it's clear that's an improvement. Um, yeah, well, and, we shouldn't and have it, to choose between those two options, of course. No, no, we shouldn't. And I, and I, I, do feel like it's bringing to light though something because policing does mean very different things depending on which com- what kind of community you live in. If you live in the kind of community where they're more predator than helper, I mean, I, I happen to live in a sort of suburban um, offshoot of Los Angeles and it's small, it's not LAPD. You know, we don't have, you know, a lot of the problems that you have with the LAPD. So most of the people in this town are supportive of the police. They think the police are doing a good job. I have to admit the police who are here are not the police that were in New York or the police that are in LA or the what I think of when I think of police in America. This is a more of a small town. You know, I, I think a lot of people around the country in places like where I live think of the police that way. But if you live in Ferguson, if you live in a place where mm-hmm. the police are doing nothing but harassing you for, you know, driving, moving violations, parking tickets, that kind of thing, just to, to get money out of you and then harassing you for whatever reason they can come up with and probably not doing a great job of protecting you against crime from the other people living around you. It's a different world. It's to me, it's like there are really two countries in this country. There are two different worlds. There's the world where people are kind of generally, you know, either not troubled by or even actively supportive of their police and then there's this other world where it's like you you know you have no idea what we're living with because that's not what the police are to us so what i what i hear from from um you know when people say oh that's coming from a privileged position i cringe at the use of the word privilege because i don't think it's a privilege to not be beaten up by local police department um but maybe what she's getting at is that the people who you know, depend on their, think that they can depend on their police to protect them, aren't aware of this other universe. Sure. And there, but there, but there seems to be this, this desire to make everyone else aware of it by inflicting it upon them, which is, to me, is, is completely backwards. You know, let's, the, the people who, who aren't suffering the abuses we're suffering, we need to make them suffer the abuses so that they'll understand what we go through. Well, no, how about just getting rid of those? How about we just work to, to end those abuses, um, you know, which, as you say, get rid of government policing, get rid of get rid of monopoly policing, allow competition, and have a way to hold police accountable. Because right now, that's the core of the problem: is you can't you can't hold a government agency accountable, you can't hold the police accountable, and I think that's becoming clear to a lot of people. And uh, I, I keep even though. I probably seem like a pessimistic guy to some people. I uh, I do keep falling prey to uh, naive optimism when uh, some issue like this first bubbles up in the news. I usually go through a period of thinking like, oh, 
you know, mm. people might be able to come together on this issue and there's some common ground here. And then, no, the, uh, increasingly nowadays, the common ground quickly gets destroyed and people retreat to dichotomous positions, sometimes even positions that they didn't formulate until the event happened. So, for instance, mm-hmm. uh I was pleased when uh, when the Ferguson stuff happened. Uh, one vocal person uh, early on was uh, Rand Paul, and I thought, oh, this will be a chance to talk about how routine SWAT raids are a bad idea and stuff like that. And I actually thought, like, well, this could be a great learning opportunity. And I didn't foresee, I must admit, how uh, racialized the reaction to it was going to be. And... Uh, and I, I, I think I, I don't remember if I tweeted or Facebook posted or what, but I remember urging some people to try to keep talking about um, police brutality as the issue instead of mm-hmm. turning it into uh, just a footnote to race relations. Not because I was callous about the race issues, but because I thought like those aren't going to get solved in any clear cut way, uh, you know, anytime well, that's in the next, not the, next that's few not months. The, that's not the core of the issue either. I mean, that's... I feel like I, 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 you know, we've been watching this develop over decades, actually, this sort of this push to, to make everything about race and to make everything about different identity groups and to pit those identity groups against each other and to pretend that, I mean, if, if, if these movements were actually going against the root cause of the problem, if they were actually going against sorry, if they were actually going against monopoly state violence and the institution of the monopoly state itself, then number one, the mainstream media wouldn't have anything to do with it. Um, But number two, that would be actually, that would be moving in a direction of solving the problem. That's not what the, the people who I think have the most interest in fanning these flames and in turning it into a racial debate or turning it into a, an us versus them um, argument are the ones who don't want to solve the problem. They want people at each other's throats and they want, they want chaos and they want, and not the good kind of chaos, but they want disorder. And um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just old divide and conquer. They want the people fighting against the people so that the, the ruling elites can continue, you know, plundering them and ruling over them. So to me, when I, when I see this focus on race as if, as if race is the problem, race is not the problem. But if you say that, then you're brand now, you know, now I'm branding myself a racist because I refuse to acknowledge that there's racism. No, there is racism. There's obviously racism, but that's not the core of the problem. That's not, that's not the heart of it. And that's addressing racism is not going to solve any of this. And, um, and without completely dismissing uh, the race issue, if you focus on something more narrow and technical, like police brutality, it might actually be soluble. I mean, you know, there are legal changes you could make that could fix something like that, or at least drastically decrease the problem. Whereas if you say, before we address that technical problem, we need to talk about whether Shakespearean literature classes are too white and we need to talk about, you know, Thomas Jefferson's mixed motivations and stuff. I mean, you know, that's like basically inviting the conflict to go on for another six decades because, you know, you're not going to have a piece of legislation that solves that overnight or anything. Yeah. And I mean, just as an example, I think a few police departments across the country have actually said, either the police departments or the cities have said that they were going to end qualified immunity for the police departments. 
that's that's progress. That's that's actually a real thing that can make a real difference in stopping this. That's as you said. That's a, it's a change to the law or to to how the law is implemented. You know, qualified immunity is a huge part. It's not the whole thing, but it's a huge part of why police departments are able to get away with inflicting crimes on other people. So that's a real solution. You know, having, you know, big discussions about racism in Shakespeare. Sorry, that's, that's, it's a, di- it's a diversion that's not going to help the people who need help. And in a somewhat analogous way to sort of bring things full circle, although I've totally lost track of whether it's time to do that. Um, <laughs> We're getting close. Uh, We're getting close. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, one reason I, I, I become wary of, of big, broad conversations about uh, immigration is that those are also often broad, sloppy, cultural ways of trying to solve what could be a relatively narrow, dry, rational, technical problems. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. if you're literally worried that gang members will try to mug you or shoot you, you know, how about enforcing those specific laws uh, mm-hmm. more vigorously, regardless of who the perpetrators are? Right. Um, yeah, and and of course, some of the same people who are enthusiastic about like using uh, immigration restrictions as a, a cudgel uh, to solve uh, some of those sorts of problems uh, would freak out if you produced uh, really good empirical data showing, for instance, that you know certain types of crimes are more likely to be committed by rural folk than by city <laughs> folk. So let's pass laws banning rural folk from traveling as they please, or let's have extra monitors on rural folk. Or just to show that when I talk about these things, I'm not just being self-interested. I like to occasionally bring up the fact that, uh, as far as I know, the stats show that white males, of which I am one, um, white males are more likely to be serial killers. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm willing to acknowledge that, but I wouldn't want all, you know, white males fitted with, uh, ankle monitors, uh, because of it. And likewise, I don't want to stop all Guatemalans from traveling, uh, you know, just because there's like some Latino gang in Texas that's recently caused problems. Um, you know, try to narrowly tailor your solutions instead of painting everyone with a broad brush. And, and another reason, of course, not to paint groups with a broad brush is, America should know just from turning its gaze abroad that if you try to solve things on an ethnic group by ethnic group basis instead of an individual by individual basis, it never ends. I mean, there's just an infinite and endless toting up of grievances uh, that people can do for thousands of years, which is why you get tribal warfare uh, and so forth. Uh, nobody's ever satisfied that their side's grievances have all been settled and that your side has finally come around and learned civil behavior. But if you focus on just arresting the individual who pickpocketed someone last week, um, or for that matter, the son of an aristocrat who embezzled uh, last month, you know, you, you can send the right messages about how to behave without insulting everyone's ancestry and that sort of thing. So anyway, libertarians uh, of all people should know the closer you get this to uh, settling specific instances of property rights violations, the tidier the law will be. And I would stick with that. Yeah, that, no, that's that's sort of that's kind of the core of it, um, and we've moved so far away from from that. Um, we will we will we are wrapping up now because we've actually gone a little bit over. But um, just to sort of wrap up, um, you know, it, it just to me relates to the whole the distinction between collectivism and what you're talking about, which is a society founded on you know, individual, you respond as an individual, you're responsible for your own actions. You'll be held to account for your own actions. 
you don't get um, you know you you don't get to attack an entire group because one member of that group wronged you in some way or because you know they wronged someone in your group, but you really focus on the individuals and where the 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 sort of the loudest of the voices and the whole the cancel culture and all the the craziness that we're seeing in the last few years is going is just it's pure collectivism and you know um i've i spent time in china spent time in hong kong i've i've spoken with a lot of people who lived through maoist china and to me i've been i've been saying this for years now we are approaching i think we're probably we're in it now um the equivalent of Mao's cultural revolution, which was a complete, um, a completely collectivist assault on the individuals living in that country. So it's, um, I don't know, my, my, where I'm trying to go with this is, you know, what do, what do we, how do we counter that? This, this isn't, this is not, um, this isn't something that just sort of sprung up in the last few months. This has been this, this, you know, this rise in collectivist thinking has been brewing for a long time. What do we do? What are, what's our, what, what's your solution? Uh, I mean, I guess way my short answer is individualism. Um, although I, I, a big footnote to that has to be that uh, as with the other cultural trade-offs I was talking about, we don't know the correct degree of individualism either. I mean, I think that too sort of has to be determined uh, by the market. So, uh, my real answer always ends up being um, strict property rights adherence, and uh, that will tend to make people behave like individualists as opposed to collectivists. Um, and uh, that's that's one reason why I find it troubling when uh, certain impulses recently on the right, sort of in the in the Trump era, uh, easily lead to talk of like owning the country as a whole or owning mm. the borders or mm-hmm. you know, the our our country stuff uh can easily turn into a sort of a collectivist mindset um same time it, it's tricky because um yeah if, if people are behaving in a sort of communal or tribal fashion but still doing it within the uh, constraints of property rights i can't really complain too much uh, this is sort of similar to the question of um, how much, you know, Facebook, uh, can, uh, police, uh, its content. I mean, there's a sense in which, of course, the libertarian answer is, um, Facebook can do whatever it wants as long as, uh, it, it warns you in advance. Um, but, uh, lest we, uh, despair and think, gosh, I guess we just have to accept cancel culture and so forth. Um, I will say, uh, there, there's always room to develop an individualist and tolerant ethos beyond uh, property rights adherence. So we can complain about cancel culture. We can complain about the sort of Maoist mindset, even if it hasn't yet resulted in uh, in laws um, or government spending. And uh, and to sort of left leaning libertarians who disagree with me on that, perhaps I would just say. Um, aren't they usually quite comfortable complaining about theocratic tendencies that they see on the right? So like if they saw that a whole, you know, like a huge portion of evangelicals were just salivated at the idea of, you know, stoning gays to death or something like that, um, they'd be worried right now, even if 
no laws had yet resulted from that mm -hmm. mindset. I mean, of course, mm -hmm. historically, there have been laws that resulted from that mindset. Um, but you can complain about sort of the mob mentality, even if it hasn't yet resulted in uh, violations of property rights or uh, hasn't resulted yet in onerous laws. And similarly, if you've got a bunch of people who think like Maoists and don't seem to appreciate the need for tolerance and debate, it's fair to call that a cultural problem, I think, even if it hasn't yet resulted in too many laws. Yeah. And uh, some of the libertarians and left libertarians, I think, uh, perhaps disingenuously pretend uh, that those cancel culture tendencies aren't yet a problem because they're not officially law. Yeah, and I think also um, just because of the culture we've been raised in, which is very, or at least so, so many of us, especially if you've gone to government schools, um, where there's a sort of presumption that if there's a problem, therefore the solution is government. Um, but that's not, you know, that that's absurd, of course. Um, you know, you can acknowledge that, like what what you what you're talking about here, the whole the cancel culture and the I'm going to call it Maoist, the Maoist culture that we're kind of living in right now, it is a problem, and that doesn't mean that I would advocate for bringing government in to solve that problem, um, or that even government there is a government solution because I don't, I don't think there is. Um, but yeah, one one can certainly acknowledge problems things things that we have a problem with culturally without resorting to you know the use of force as a solution to it you know uh, one cultural figure from the not too distant past uh who crosses my mind once in a while these days uh as perhaps uh something of a model uh he's not perfect but he's a nice apolitical relatively apolitical uh exemplar of what we want is Rod Serling, I would contend. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, technically a moderate liberal, uh, but when you watch Twilight Zone episodes, you don't get the impression that like, ah, the, pur the purpose of that episode is to get me to raise my taxes or put someone in jail. Usually the, the message is avoid irrational mob psychology, and that's still a mm -hmm, good message. Mm -hmm. uh, and regardless yeah, so, of whether the mob is black or white, I should add. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... God, you watch you watch some of those episodes now, and they're downright radical. I mean, they're actually, you know, he has strong free speech messages, um, anti-collectivist mentality, you know, thinking rationally, all this stuff that's verboten now. Um, yeah, it's, I guess I guess liberal is probably the best word to describe him, but he doesn't sort of doesn't doesn't fit the mold of today's liberals. Yeah, that's a, that's a great it, example. It's interesting that uh, Ayn Rand wanted him to, uh, without endorsing everything about her by any means, uh, <laughs> she wanted. Rod Serling to write the screenplay for an Atlas Shrugged movie. Wow. Uh, but he, but by his standards, she was just a cult leader nut. So mm. he completely dismissed the idea, uh, which is understandable, but it's interesting that there sure. is, there is some overlap in those, uh, those two Venn diagram circles. Yeah, there is. I mean, you wouldn't think of putting those two together, but there absolutely is. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, I, I sort of, I see him as sort of being, I guess in the old style liberal mold of like Rod Serling or someone who's just, you know, let's be rational, keep our, keep our ability to think clearly and maybe we can preserve civilization by doing so. And actually one nice thing about the twilight zone model, I, obviously I have to write this as a column, which I haven't gotten around yeah. to doing yet, but yeah. uh, one nice thing about that approach is uh, at the same time that there's an optimism 
in the Twilight Zone uh, episodes in that uh, people are capable of rising above superstition and capable of rising above uh, tribalism. He rightly recognizes in a sort of uh, Kafkaesque way that any system can be abused and turned into a way of entrapping people. Mm -hmm. And sadly, I find myself thinking that more and more lately, uh, including when I see the behavior of uh, some uh, outright capitalists. Um, so, you know, like uh, you could have a tech company that just makes every all of its customers happy and empowered, but you can also use that technology in extremely intrusive ways may not violate property rights, but can be very creepy. And you know, uh, the Twilight Zone sort of left us with the lesson that a department store can become creepy, your boss yeah, can be that creepy. that was a creepy one. That was a very and, creepy one. And uh, I, that doesn't mean I'm dismissing the distinction between property rights violations and mere creepy behavior, but they're both worth keeping in mind. And uh, if we were more willing to uh, acknowledge both, maybe people wouldn't uh, feel that they had to choose either like sadistic yeah. online trolling on the one hand or government censorship on the other. Um, yeah. Well, and it's harder to untangle these days because there is so much of a, it. We're really kind of living in the corporate state. I mean, it's, it's hard to, un, to sort of in, in some instances, I mean, Facebook's being sued right now on these very grounds because they are taking, taking some government instructions in their decisions about what content to allow and what not to allow. So it, among, among a great many other things, there's this entanglement between the state and corporations. So it's, you know, we're not, we're not, what we're looking at right now is not this sort of pure, you're either with the government or you're a big corporate social media company. Um, it's, it's, it's very muddled and gray. But that's that's a topic that's a topic for another show though we um, we do have to write we do have to wrap up any parting thoughts uh, let's see um, if people are interested they can find my weekly columns on the uh, website splicetoday.com um, and as you said I, I wrote the book libertarianism for beginners and uh, people find it always find it hard to believe that you can buy that just by going to amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com. They assume there's some weird trick to it, like they have to log on to some Bitcoin-related website or whatever. But no, it's just a normal book. Um, it's out it's there. So by all means, buy it. If you're a professor, buy 60 copies for your class or uh, whatever. Yeah, probably more because people will lose them. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and give it to friends. I, uh, I should say, by the way, that um, I wrote that book just before Trump got the Republican nomination. And oh, wow. I admit, when I look back at it now, it just, it seems like an artifact from another world in some ways. <laughs> and it makes me a little sad sometimes. But, you know, but on the other hand, people might find it inspiring. They should buy it in any case. Um, yes. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. And um, I'm going to have to have you on again sometime to, to follow oh, up some of these. So, all right.